Well, you ready to get into the Word of God and the sermon? Amen? Good. So we're in a series on the divided kings, and this is the final part of our series. We did a series on the life of Saul, the life of David, the life of Solomon. Good, you guys are paying attention. So I want to tell you um, about what happens when a missionary goes to a foreign land, and they are going to translate the Bible into um, some kind of tribe or nation's language. So when they come into this land, there's oftentimes, especially in more remote parts of the world, you'll have what's called a trade language and a heart language. And the trade language is the language of commerce. So people understand it and they know it, and, uh, but they don't really speak it. They don't dream in this language. It's not their heart language. The heart language is the language that oftentimes you, grow, you grew up with, um, you understand the language on a deeper level. Oftentimes people will dream in this language. They'll self-talk in this language. Uh, they intuitively understand inference, innuendo, implication, insinuation. There's just something much more personal and deep about this. So when you go into a land, you want to translate the Bible, not simply in the trade language, but you want to translate it in their heart language so they can understand the depth and the nuance. So all of you have a heart language. The majority of you, it's English, but not all of you. But there's also this thing that I call heart culture. And it's the culture that you grew up in. It's the culture that formed you and shaped you from a, from a young age. And it still to this day is the dominant culture through which, the lens through which you see the world. It's your heart culture. You understand the world through this lens. Everything that happens is filtered through your heart culture. I want to give you an illustration of this. So you have um, those who were born and grew up in the Depression, Okay. And they see the world very differently. They have values of simplicity and frugality, limited excess. There's just hard work is one of the just intense values. That's why they're called the greatest generation at times. And that were, it's just a really unique set of values amongst that generation. And that's their cultural heart language. Now, I'd like to contrast them with millennials. So I, I might be the oldest plausible millennial that you could be, okay? born in 1980 to 2000. And, and so millennials are known for being entitled, selfish. Um, right? Somebody give me an amen on this one. Everyone is older, right? right? Yeah. All the millennials are like, no, I'm not. Well, just before you say amen, um, boomers, you coddled us, and we grew up and became entitled in your home. So it goes both ways. I'm not going to give anyone an easy out on this one, okay? So like everyone's at fault, but here's the point, right? We grow up, and everything is easy. Everything was given to us. Nothing required hard work. And we started to believe, I deserve this. This is what I do. I'm a human. I'm important because I'm me, right? If you don't give me what I want, then I will go get it from someone else because I am entitled, okay? And so like, there's this language, this culture inside of a millennial that you can try to get rid of it, but it is how you grew up. It is a part of your DNA, and it doesn't always have to be that bad. I'm kind of picking on my generation, but, um, but here's what happens, right? So right now in American culture, millennials are like 78 million or something like that. Boomers are retiring and dying, and so they're shrinking as a generation. We outnumber as a generation everyone. I'm just saying that's like statistically what's happening. You don't have to like it. I'm just telling you. Okay. So what's happening though is we come into the workforce and we are transforming to the frustration of the boomer generation how work is done. Articles are being written. Organizations are transforming their leadership structures, the facilities, their buildings, their environments to accommodate this enormous cultural thrust. And you can make a millennial fit your mold, but will they? 
No. Why? Because they'll do what they want when they want, how they want, right? And again, what environment and who coddled us? You did. So just going to make sure we're all on the same page right now, okay? Uh, so you don't get to point fingers at each other. But this is a part of it. You cannot take the culture out of somebody. Now, with every culture, there are good things and there are bad things, every one of them. There are some amazing things about millennials. We will change the world in ways this world has never seen before because we're the most optimistic generation that has ever existed, right? So like, there are... There are goods and bads here, right? But every generation and every culture has a cultural idol. Things that like a magnet, we don't even know. Subconsciously, we are drawn to these things and we worship these things. We set them as most important and worthy of our resources and our worship. Every single culture has them. So now here's the deal. You are 21st century Western Americans reading a book about an ancient Near Eastern culture thousands of years ago. And you open up the Bible and you start reading that these people, the Israelites, in this ancient Near Eastern culture, have this pull to this really strange worship. And here's what they worshiped. They worshiped gods who were made out of wood or stone or metal and were carved. Usually they were smaller and would be in people's homes. And that they believed the gods and goddesses incarnated themselves into these things, right? And so they would worship these sticks or these, 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 these metal crafts, whatever, uh, and they believed that they were actually worshiping gods. Now, <clears throat> that's what they did. Now, culturally speaking, you come from a different heart culture, so you're going to look at this and say, that is so dumb. I would never worship something so trite and small like that. But then here's what happens in, in these cultures. Every culture does not just have what they're tempted to worship, but they have oftentimes these, these, we'll call it the most grotesque versions of how they worship. And so here's what God does. God um, sees the Israelites, and he sees what they're worshiping. They're making these weird objects and worshiping them. And of course, they sacrifice different things to them. But then there are these acts of worship that are so grotesque, and they just make God livid, angry. And so here's how. This is the heart language of ancient Near Easterners. This is the heart language of Israel. This is how was natural for them to worship these idols through massive sexual perversion, male cult prostitution, mass orgies, right? Husbands would leave and say, I'm going to the temple. They would act homosexual acts, right? And here's what they thought. We are going to arouse the gods, the fertility gods. And if they watch us acting sexually deviant, they will be aroused and they will send rain. Now you should hear that and say, what on earth are they thinking, right? Anybody in this room think that's so strange? They didn't think that was strange, okay? In fact, God came in, did all these miracles, and was like, hey, by the way, these aren't real gods, and FYI, I'm in control of the rain, and you should only worship me, and they will destroy you, and this is not good, it's demon worship. And, and so they're sitting here, they're seeing prophets of God do these miracles, they see God part the Red Sea, and yet the cultural pull, the magnetic pull towards these things is so strong because it is their heart culture, and it's their heart idol, right? And you look at this, and you're like, oh, Now, before you look at them and say, how dumb could they possibly be, let me take that wagging finger and point it back to you, okay? What is the 21st century Western idol? The thing that Christians and non-Christians bow down to and see as most valuable and worthy of worship. You know what it is? Me. You. Self-worship. 
self-determination, self-realization, self-actualization. Me, me, mine, me, mine. What I want, what I want is most important. What I think is most important. You can think what you think. I'm the mini-God of my own little universe. Ah, I read what God says about himself in the Bible. I don't like that. I'm going to put aside that. I'm going to pick the parts that I like. I determine reality. I determine truth. I determine my destiny. I am in control myself. The greatest value of my life is becoming my best self now, right? You understand that? Here's, Here's the thing. There's a magnetic pull in you towards the subconsciously and stronger than anything you realize. Now, what is the primary, most perverse way that we as a culture worship the God of self? Okay? There's a whole bunch of ways, right? But what is the one where God just steps back and he plucks it out and he says, this, this will push me to the edge. Here it is. Unhindered sexual experience and worship. We worship ourselves, and at the altar of ourselves, we demand the freedom to act however we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, without accountability, because don't judge me, I judge myself. So you may not be on the cutting edge of culture and what's happening, but let me just warn you, uh, millennials are enormous, and one of the realities of the millennial generation, which, by the way, is being coddled and fostered in the boomers and the Xers who are politically running this country, right? We are being fostered and cultivated in an environment that believes at our core this. Erotic rights and liberties are more important and valuable than religious rights and liberties. You catch that? So when erotic rights and religious rights butt heads in a millennial's mind, culturally speaking, who loses? The religious rights. This is not, I'm not a paranoid pastor talking about politics. I'm telling you, this is, okay? It is a part of the heart language. For the millennials, they are by and large going to see erotic rights as a civil right. And for, for religious rights, they're going to see it as a preference, And when one contradicts the other or does not enable complete autonomy and freedom in the other, it will be seen as an obstacle and must be gotten rid of. That is the cultural heart language. Now, before you get mad at the millennials, okay, boomers and Xers, you are coddling and fostering the environment where these values are being uh, implanted in their souls. So this is everybody. I'm not trying to blame anybody, right? When one generation does not tend to the morals of the next generation, the next generation disintegrates, and this is what happens. Now, we're going to meet Jeroboam. Jeroboam is a king of the northern kingdom called Israel, and Jeroboam is going to facilitate and foster an environment where he gives over the nation of Israel to their cultural idols, where he fosters environments where he says, This is good. Come do this. And what happens when a king or a governor or somebody opens up and makes legal the things that we're drawn to the most? We block to them. You're going to see this happen with the nation of Israel. So I want to give you a couple of pieces of context. You need to know these things to understand what's happening. Now, there are a couple Boams, okay? Jeroboam, is who we will speak of today. Rehoboam is the son of king... Solomon, okay? He inherited a united Israel, and Rehoboam um, basically squandered all of the nation's wealth opulence just totally because of his lack of integrity, his pride, um, did some amazing, amazingly dumb things. Civil war between the north and the south. So what was unified when Rehoboam received it in three days became a divided nation. And in the north, it's called Israel, or the northern kingdom. In the south, it's called Judah. 
Uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is the king of the south. Jeroboam, who we're going to talk about, he's the king of the north. Okay? So you need to know that we're in a divided kingdom. It's like a civil war between the north and the south. We're talking about the north today, and the south is uh, Rehoboam. That was last week. Uh, number two, when God gave them these kingdoms, they had, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the opportunity to have thriving God-honoring kingdoms in and of themselves. Um, God ordained the division, but he did not ordain that they would be bad leaders. And in the ultimate of ironies, what God did, is he said to the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, I will bless you if you obey me and worship me. And he said the same thing to Rehoboam in the south. I will bless you if you obey me and worship me. So here's what he did. He divided the nation, and in the northern kingdom were the majority of the priests. And the southern kingdom was the temple where they were supposed to worship. And the only way the northern kingdom and southern kingdom could cooperate and obey God was to be on the same page, and they would have to work and collaborate together. What happens when you're in a civil war between the north and the south? Can these people get on the same page and work together? No. So neither of them are able to obey. Now, the third thing you need to understand, you just got to get this, is that when the Bible's written, okay, uh, when these narrative stories are written, oftentimes they're not going to give you moral judgments and conclusions, So some people will read it and they'll say, look what he did. Well, the Bible didn't say it was bad. Here's what the authors assume about every one of you in this room. They assume you've read the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and that you know the laws. So when somebody makes a golden calf, they assume you've read the Torah. Should you make a golden calf and worship it? Answer, no, because in the Torah, it says basically don't do that. Okay? Should a king ever ever offer a sacrifice on the altar? The answer is no, because in the Torah, the law, we already know not to do that. So the narrator of the story is not going to give a ton of moral judgments, okay? But what he is doing is assuming that you are smart, you read it, and the filter through which you're hearing the story is your knowledge of the law. So in case you don't know the law, I'm going to fill you in as we go. I'm going to turn with me to uh, 1 Kings 4.19. 1 Kings 4.19. We're going to start at the end of Jeroboam's life so you can see his legacy, and you'll know exactly where this is going. 1 Kings 4.19. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Do we have the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? The answer is no, we don't. So all of his exploits, 17 years this guy reigned, all of the stuff he did, all of the wars, his political leadership, his savvy, all of the great things he did politically and economically for the nation of Israel, when God stepped back to write his story, did any of that concern him? No. The only thing that God shows, the only parts of the story that God shows for God's people to remember are this, the things that illustrated the condition of his heart. So before God... What is of infinitely more valuable value, your heart or your accomplishments? Your heart every time. And so this, even just this one little sentence, is an indictment on what God values the most and that God didn't even see it fit to include these in his story. Jeroboam's heart is his legacy. You need to catch that. Uh, Number two, Jeroboam's character. Turn back with me a few chapters to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to start reading in verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, also lifted up his hand against the king. Okay, when somebody lifts up their hand against the king, is anybody supposed to do that? Negative. So you as the reader, what does, what does the author want you to know? Here's what he wants you to know. He, Jeroboam, is not like David. Did David lift up his hand against the king? No. So already the author is telling you this. There's something fundamentally wrong 
in his character. You go to verse 28. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So here's what we see. Not only does he have a character gap, right, but he is willing to oversee the enslavement of his own people. Is this what God ever wanted or commissioned for the people of Israel to enslave Israelites to build false gods and temples? The answer is negative. And so we already see in the front end, the author wants you to know something. Uh, Jeroboam's character will not be able to sustain his calling. He is in over his head. His heart is broken. Now let's go to verse 29, and we're going to see his promise. Follow along. At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Why? Verse 33, Because they have forsaken me, and worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Go to verse 37. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen, here's the the rule, you will have everything you want if you will listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. Lots of words. The promise is clear. If Jeroboam obeys, what will God do? Bless him and build him a sure kingdom. This is Jeroboam's to lose. I mean, God is setting him up. We get to his strengths. The, jump with me to 1 Kings 12, 25. Um, the story is interrupted here by um, Rehoboam. The story comes back in 1 Kings 12, 25. We'll jump off there. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. Why this is important uh, he is a builder. This is what he does. He builds things. He's good at it. He builds people. He builds nations. He builds cities. He is a builder. Um, we also see that he's an incredible politician. Do you know what Jeroboam means? May the people be great. I mean, he, he, just, he was great. The people loved him. Everybody loved him, except for the house of Joseph. Let's be honest, right? Jeroboam was blessed. He has the promise of God's blessing, the prophet's blessing, the people's support, skills of leadership, political savvy. And here's the question as you're reading. Here's the question. What will he do with this amazing opportunity? Will he squander it or will he seek God? And at the end of the day, here's what the author wants you to know. His heart will determine his legacy. His heart will absolutely determine his legacy. Go to number two in your notes. 1 Kings 12, 26. And Jeroboam said, where? In his Heart. Okay, whenever, whenever anybody's going to speak from their heart, should you listen? 
Absolutely. Yes. So you're going to hear the word heart come up because what is God concerned with? Accomplishments or heart? Heart. Every time. Okay. So here's what he says in his heart. Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If the people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the hearts of this people will turn again to their Lord, not Yahweh, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. I mean, God was clear, wasn't he? Like, why is he going on this downward spiral of anxiety? He's like, oh, what if this happens and this happens? Ah. Like, God already made it clear to you. Like, rest, rest. And some of you will be sitting here, and because you're reading it, like, you're, you're thinking to yourself, come on, Jeroboam, like, the Lord was so clear. Like, why would you go into this downward spiral of worry and anxiety and then put into plan these crazy plans, and, and then we would take that finger and point it right back at yourself and say, I don't know, you tell me, like, God wrote a whole bunch of things really clearly in his word, and yet we look at him and say, eh, not going to do that today. Eh, don't gossip, don't slander, don't be divisive, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, be faithful in my taxes. The list goes on and on and on. Give generously, serve regularly, love my family, sacrifice, sacrificial love to my wife, submission to my husband. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And what do we do? Eh, I'll get to that, right? He'll forgive me. So, like, before, I, I got to hold you guys at bay because your hearts, right? You want to judge this guy, and so do I. And I want to say, whoop, point that finger back at yourself and say, he is me. This is my story, right? Okay, we'll keep going. Just to make sure we're on the same page. <laughs> Verse 28. So the king took counsel. We don't know with who. Want to hit these people in the head because whatever the counsel was, it led to this. And they made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, does the author have to make any moral statements about what's happening? No, because who made a golden calf that really angered God? Oh, could it be Aaron? And what did he say? I don't know, maybe something like, oh, um, behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And we should be reading this on the one hand and saying, what are you doing? You know better. And then looking at ourselves and saying, wait, I know better. And I do the same dumb things. And then we look at it and say, whoa, like this is verbatim what Aaron said to the people and incited God to such intense, intense anger. But this, this isn't the end of it. He is not even beginning to stop here. Now, you need to understand why this is important with a calf. This is actually a bull. It's a male uh, because they... It's an agrarian society. The more bulls you have, the wealthier you are. This is food. It's sustenance. It's wealth. It's, it's, it's commerce. It's everything. The more of this you have, the more money you have. This is their idol. It represents what is most important to them. But then verse 29 says this. He set one of them in Bethel, which, by the way, is six miles north of the temple, okay, just over the border. And the other he put in Dan, Then this thing became a sin. Listen to this. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. The way the text is set up, this is what what it's trying to say. The people flocked to it. I mean, they ran for it. They knew the word of God, but the pull, the magnetic tug of their heart idols and heart culture was so strong that when the government comes over them and fosters this environment, the people flock to their cultural idols. This is the human condition. I hope you catch this. When governments facilitate and foster our cultural idols, especially around issues of sexuality, right? we flock to them as a nation and we give ourselves over to them. 
FYI. Is that clear? Good. Verse 31. He also made temples on high places. Wow, I thought we already had a temple. Okay. Uh, And appointed priests from among all the peoples who were not of the Levites. Is that supposed to happen, by the way? Negative. Negative, negative, negative. Um, Stay there. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 11. I want you to listen to what happens, okay? Uh, Verse 14 and 15. The Levites left their common lands and their holdings, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he, Jeroboam, appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. And so what happens when the people of God get in the way of the cultural idols? Whoever's in control gets rid of the people of God. Okay? That's the rhythm. You just got to get your brain there. Okay? That's the rhythm. Verse 32. Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. Okay? This is like changing Christmas to June, and instead of celebrating the incarnate Jesus Christ, he gets up and says, eh, we're going to change the date, and instead of God becoming flesh in Jesus on Christmas, we're going to say a goat became incarnate in a woman, and we're going to worship that. You know what the people did? Sounds great to me. <laughs> they flocked to this. It keeps going. This gets so insane. Um, And verse 32, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. The reader should gasp at that. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month. I love this. In the month that he had devised in his own heart. Like I imagine people go up to him like, why are you changing Christmas to June? I wanted to. Like I came up with it in my own heart, you know. And what does that tell you about his heart over and over again? It's corrupt. His heart, right, cannot sustain his calling. How could you do this? John Calvin said, love this line, the heart is an idol-making factory. That this is what we are prone to, right? I love to get up and say, you're all good people. By nature, if you just go on default, you're going to bring God glory. The problem is when you read the Bible, it does not permit me to say that. What I have to conclude by reading the Bible is that we are broken We are idol-making factories, and we need God, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the people of God to come as a hedge of a protection around us because we love to do this. And you know what our idols are? We've already said it. Me, and I'm going to love myself uh, as best I can, and I'm going to worship myself. My, My worship offering will be unhindered sexual experience. That's how we function. This is like a village, like village church getting a new pastor. He comes in, and he says... We're no longer worshiping God, but cows and goats. Sound good, everybody? And then everybody says, oh, that sounds like a plan to us. Okay, good. Um, we're no longer going to worship in churches, um, but we're going to worship in Hindu temples and Islamic mosques. You good? Yeah, that sounds like a plan to us. We are no longer allowed to have pastors who believe the Bible and lead us, but anybody who wants to, okay, especially if you worship goats. Like, that's, a, that's like, if you do that, okay, then you're in. In fact, anybody who believes the Bible, you're not allowed to even be a part of this nation anymore. You're done. You're out. Uh, by the way, we're going to worship not on Sundays, but Tuesdays at lunch. Why, you ask? Because I want to. Oh, and every year, we're going to change Christmas. It is not going to be uh, Christmas about Jesus anymore. We're going to get rid of Easter. We're going to have Cow Day on May 3rd. I devised that one up in my own heart. What do you think? And what do the people say? Sounds like a plan to me, right? Because what is he giving them? What their heart desperately wants. 
drives me nuts. When you read this, I want to reach the pages of Scripture, right? And be like, no. Point the finger back at myself. Number three, Jeroboam's false repentance. Chapter 13, we don't have time to go through all of 13. Uh, really, really interesting story. You should read it. Um, we'll start with verse one. We'll read a couple verses. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Is this bad? Everybody say yes. Good. The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, happened 300 years later, by the way, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him, because what has he done to every prophet who worships Yahweh in truth? He arrests them and casts them out. So seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. And as an act of repentance, what the Lord, what, what Jeroboam does in verse 5 is, the altar also was torn down, the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, oh, I'm repentant. Look, I tore down the altar. Could you just ask God to heal me? Question, does his heart want to worship God? No. If you were God, what would you do? I would kill him. Anyone? Right? I mean, it says something when me and God constantly are doing different things, right? But like, I'm reading this, and he just continually does what I don't think he would do. And so he restores the guy's hand. Why? So that Jeroboam knew that he knew that this prophet indeed spoke for God. That his words were 100% true. Now, what happens um, throughout the rest of this chapter is the prophet was told, you go six miles past the, past the border, and you preach, and you come back. You don't talk to anybody. You don't eat with anybody. And apparently God thought this nation was so corrupt, and these prophets of Judah were so, uh, we'll say, sensitive to these kind of temptations And so what does the prophet do? The prophet tries to stick to his gun, uh, and he ends up going into somebody's house. The Lord kills him before he can get back over the border because he disobeyed the word of the Lord. And it's interesting. It's this, I think, subtle statement in the text that this is what happens to good people when they surround themselves and immerse themselves in false cultures, when they let that culture be their primary influence. We saw a couple weeks ago that God kept the southern kingdom safe because of all these priests that came down. They walked with God for three years, and then they stopped. They were so corrupted by their, their, their surrounding culture that they gave themselves over to worshiping false gods. But verse 33, we get down to the end of the story, and here's what it says. After this thing, Jeroboam gets his hand back. Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, here's the word, again, from among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Here's just a little parenting tip for you guys. Um, discipline does not change the heart, but it restrains the heart. Catch that? You can discipline and discipline and discipline. You will 
restrain it. Sometimes you'll inform it, but you will not change it. Our kids need Jesus desperately, okay? Discipline restrains. And this is what we see right now, is that he was restrained for a little bit, and as soon as the restraints were taken off, the fullness of his heart was shown and seen. He needed a heart change. That's what he needed more than anything else. Discipline is a means to that end, but not the end. Number four, the collateral. I mean, we see all throughout Scripture, the first line of collateral damage for our disobedience is is seen in our sons and daughters. So we'll watch what happens. It's kind of a hard ending, but we're at 1 Kings 14. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh, which is in the southern kingdom, and behold, Ahijah the prophet is there who said to me that I should be king over this people. I love this, that when he needs God the most, who does he go to? The person who actually worships God. I, this is one of the greatest ironies to me, that people who rebel against God, when all the stuff hits the fan, what do they do? They find that one person who's still faithful to God, could you, could you give me some advice? Could you help me? Right? But if their heart isn't actually in it, what happens? Nothing. Go to verse 6. When Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, and she came in the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. I love, she doesn't say anything. She just literally walks in. He's like, boom, we're going at this. Go tell Jeroboam. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam, listen carefully, as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Is God serious? Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city The dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Verse 12, rise therefore and go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn mourn for him and bury him. So he's the only son of Jeroboam that gets a proper burial, and here's why. This little verse has perplexed Bible scholars for some time. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. The only thing that God could find pleasing at all in the entire house, all the men, was in this little child. Something of purity was still in his heart. And we just wish we knew what it was because I'm like, whatever that is, I want it. Verse 17, then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terza. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. You think she like waited before she walked in, knowing what would happen, just paused? That all Israel buried him and mourned him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant 
Ahijah. Jeroboam goes down in history, and this phrase is consistently said about him. He made Israel to sin. If you go forward one chapter in 15, 1 Kings 15, verse 26, it says this, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And the next guy who comes in basically obliterates and kills every single person of the house of Jeroboam. So you may be thinking, wow, that was a bummer. (laughs) Happy Memorial Day. Why why is this here? I'll give you one or two simple reasons. Number one is you read this, and it's just showing you, if you rebel against God, he gives you second chances and third chances and fourth chances and sends his word to you and sends his prophets to you and sends his people to you, and he gives you these crazy experiences, right? I mean, is God just the bad guy here? Like, does God just kind of get, like, miffed one day, and then he's like, done, I'm going to kill everybody, right? It's not really what happens, is it? I mean, God is giving chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance in every which way possible. I mean, he had a prophet come to him and say, like, I will bless you. I will give you whatever you want. This guy had everything going for him. And so one of the things you see here is that this is, like, God's story with me. I'm Jeroboam. And if you didn't have the Holy Spirit of God, do you realize that you would have all of these promises in the Word of God and you would have all of these opportunities and you know what you would do? You would do what Jeroboam does. You go the opposite direction. Give yourself over to your heart, culture, and your cultural idols because this is what human nature does apart from Jesus Christ. And what God is doing right now is he's giving you a snapshot of what could have been. Now, yeah, you're not going to do it like Jeroboam did it because you're in a different culture. But as goes Jeroboam, so goes anybody apart from the grace of God. And so he looks at us and he says, this is you. So rather than being like, oh, bummer, stinks to be them, my hope for you is that this wells up gratitude in you because this is not your destiny. Because God did not leave you to your sin. Because God did intervene in your life. And God did set you on a different trajectory. And God didn't just leave you on your own to obey the law. He gave the Holy Spirit to you who would help you and assist you and transform you and to push you. And so as hard of a message as it is on one level, on the other level, the Christian from this side of the cross looks back and says, thank you, Jesus, because this is Jeroboam's worst. You gave him over to himself. I don't know what my worst is, but thank you for not giving me over to it. And here's the second part. This is just a warning. Village Church, you are growing up in the 21st century Western culture that loves and worships self and gives itself over to rampant sexual immorality at every corner. And you and I need to, by God's power and grace, overcome. We have to. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God, the people of God, family who loves Jesus, friends. I mean, we are given everything around us to help support us and sustain us so that we might not give our entire souls over to the cultural idols. And here's the crazy thing. Sometimes we don't even know we're being dragged over to it because it's so innate and a part of us. But we have to be smart. In the same way that we could look at the Israelites and say, how could you do that? The Israelites would look at you and me and say, really? Like, you're going to worship you as God? Like, how dumb could you be, right? We don't even see it. We don't even see it. Sometimes when we see other cultures through our own lens, we, find, we get a little bit more clarity. And I think once we stand before Jesus Christ, a holy, perfect God, we'll get much clarity as to our own sin issues and our own cultural issues. Um, but Village Church, man, you are saved. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are freed from this. 
And so as much of a bummer as it is, I think we should worship. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and I'm going to pray, and we are going to celebrate that God has saved us from ourselves. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, um, love you. So grateful, so grateful for salvation. I don't know what my worst is. I don't know what I'm capable of, but I know um, that even now, after having the Holy Spirit, my heart is still capable of things that just drive me nuts. And so, God, I want to thank you for every believer in Jesus Christ in this room. Um, God, may we look at the life of Jeroboam. May we learn from his example that you are a merciful, gracious, patient, self-revealing God. But you also take sin so seriously. God, I thank you on this side of the cross. We know you took sin so seriously that you paid for every infraction that we ever committed and would commit on the cross through Jesus Christ. Thank you that your justice has been seen. You are the just and the justifier. And so, Lord, what more can we do but to respond and to worship you? And so, God, we love you and we thank you. And I do pray that you would protect us oftentimes just for our, from our own selves and the cultural idols that we are so foolishly tempted to worship. Um, but right now, God, we want to worship you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen.